Hello and welcome to yet another edition of Britonology. Uh, I'm Milo Edwards. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Nate Bethay. Hello. Um, it is very cold today. It is. We're experiencing the British weather. Getting some Indiana ass weather today. Close to it. Something like that. We also are joined with our special uh, regular host guest, Hussein Kasvani. Hi. I'm actually, I haven't been on Britonology for a while. I'm really excited not to been, yeah. be, a, be a, like host it kind of or co-host it. Yeah, and this is a very special uh, episode because we're joined by uh, the king of Britonology, a, a linchpin of everything that this show is about, uh, Adrian Childs. How are you doing? <laughs> All right, thanks. Yes, good. Delight to be here. How cold? I mean, this is small potatoes compared to Indiana, surely. Well, yeah, this time of year would probably be about the same, but this is the coldest in five years I've been in this country. This is the coldest I think I've seen December be. This is pretty normal for where I'm from, but in January, February, it would be in like your minus 15, minus 20 territory. That's pretty normal. Like it. like, it's darker here, though. Is it Fargo type? No, weather? it's not quite that bad. Uh, it, 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 I think, I think, yeah, minus fifteen, minus twenty is about the coldest I ever saw it get. But it does snow a lot. So, what about the murders, the blood in the snow, <laughs> and all that? Yeah, I does think that, there's, it's less folksy when there's mass murder in Indiana. Yeah, unfortunately, right. you watch out for those pregnant cops rolling you up when you're smoking <laughs> weed as a teenager in the park. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, in, in that way, it, it's a little bit lower stakes than North Dakota. Right. I hope. Mm. So, Adrian, we brought you on the show because uh, we wanted to, to, well, we're fans of your columns. And we oh, feel that's like, very kind of you. Yeah. We feel it has like, been said uh, on the show that you're the only good British newspaper columnist. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also been said on various other shows and places that I'm the worst ever columnist. So, uh, you know. We're just haters, man. Don't, don't listen uh, to no. them. Well, you know. I think it's, it's precisely because you differ from the standard version of the British newspaper column, which is, I hate my children, yeah. uh, that we enjoy them so much. Oh, yeah. right. That's very And I think you should take the, that as a compliment, really, from the fact that the right people hate you is probably a good, okay, a good, good. starting point. <laughs> that's good. I'll take that. So we, we brought you on also because you, your new book, uh, The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less, recently out, and uh, we got a chance to read it. And one of the things we've talked about on this show, because the, the basic principle has been Milo explains British things to me as a non-Brit living in this country, is British drinking culture. And I felt like this book was a great introduction to that because you talk about your sort in, in sort of tranches, decades of your life, yeah. your experiences, how much you were consuming, what your drinking life was like, how that meshed or yeah. didn't mesh with your social life, and then the decision you made to moderate, to not quit drinking, but to moderate yeah. it significantly. And so coming into it, I, I was taken by there was a passage in particular where um, you were describing a, being, a, being a kid, being a teenager, getting into pubs, drinking underage, and the kind of centrality of alcohol to your social life. You said, it, however we did it, whoever we did it with, wherever we did it, drinking was the only thing we want, I wanted my social life to be about. An evening in which a drink didn't feature probably wouldn't happen in the first place. No booze, no point going out. So that kind of rung some bells for me but because you can't drink till you're 21, and as you experienced as a kid in underage in America, they do really enforce IDs in America. Or well, the pregnant cops, they'll be the there. pregnant cops, among other people, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's an extent to which we couldn't ever go to bars. So it was always drinking in people's houses, and it was always like, well, if the cops are going to arrest you one way or the other, you might as well drink the hardest but liquor was possible. was it a big thing in your life, though? Did, did you... Did you... Did you did it amount to a kind of a be-all and end-all, do you think? The weekend's coming, we've got to get a drink, we'll do it at home. I think the thing that's different from what you've described in the book, and that's the thing I wanted to lead into the discussion, was the centrality of the pub, the centrality of the place that you go. Whereas for us, yeah. it was like, does is there a shed in the woods where we can drink? Is it someone's basement where their parents aren't going to watch? Because like anywhere that was public, anywhere that wasn't secluded the cops could show up and they they were bored. They loved messing with teenage kids. You and be as far from the maternity clinic as possible. And, and so in a way 
you guys going to the pub, that wasn't, it didn't seem as though that was necessarily so out of the ordinary. You were trying to get served, but you could hang out. Like there seemed to be a place to go. I think that must be, I think that's slightly generational. I think it was more like that. I think it was probably more like that in my day when, you know, the pub was the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, I quote my Mm -hmm. dad as saying, you know, when I was about 14, he said, tough time for you now. You know, you're too, Mm. you're too old to stay in all the time, but you're too young to go to the pub. Yeah, right. So the pub set up as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Now I think what's happened, I think alcohol maybe has got more expensive to drink in pubs. Mm. So I think there's a lot more drinking that goes on at home along the lines you said, and mm-hmm. or in fields or, or wherever. Um, and there are fewer, fewer pubs. I mean, there's, a, there's a, an awful lot of pubs of closed. You know, yeah. the pubs, you know... <laughs> I mean, which I think is pretty critical for me. It's always been a social component to drinking to this day. You know, a lot of people drank more during lockdown. I wasn't one of them because for me it was, it's all, there's been about a social thing. I love, I just love pubs. I love, you know, know, not not very busy pubs actually. And not necessarily, I'm quite happy to go on my own, have a couple of pints, stare into space. Mm -hmm. I just Mm. love them. And I miss them when I'm away. Um, So yeah, it, it, You know, I think that's probably less the case from what I've seen in my kids and their, their peer group. And so do you feel like British drinking culture in general has changed to the point where like that would seem like an anachronism? Or do you think that if you wanted that pub no. experience that you had as a kid, that's no. still accessible? I think, uh, I, th- I, think it's, I think, look, things moved on in a way, old farts, mm. like I'm becoming sort of often can't appreciate. Um I mean, I think with these things, it's always important to remember that anecdote isn't data. Mm-hmm. So I look mm-hmm. at my kids and it's still, you know, one's just at university, one's just out of university and drinking still seems to be a sort of a key part of everything. But the data mm. tells us otherwise, fewer mm. kids of that age are drinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think probably pubs are something that I have spent more time in, like as an adult, like after leaving university and when at university as well. But certainly like when I was drinking as a teenager, it wasn't really done in pubs. It was yeah, more like furtive and less of that because it was just hard. It was a more challenging environment. I mean, drinking was cheaper then. So it was less, I think, the cost, mm. but definitely the element of like, it was always a, like, would you get served or whatever? Whereas I guess like back in the day, that was less of a concern. I mean, you, you talked a lot about the sort of fight to figure out what the right lines were to get served and a, a bunch yeah. of uh, failed attempts being told to fuck off. But yeah. mm. but it seemed at a certain point, you did find like the sweet spot about how to go well, no, about you just it. Get, oh, you grow in, but you know, by definition, you grow into it because mm-hmm. you get older, <laughs> you get, you get near. Mm. that you get nearer that age but mm. i mean it was visceral you know i still my parents still live around that the area where i grew up just outside birmingham and mm. i still you know i still literally get a frisson when i walk into some of those places <laughs> and a, you know a real thrill when i actually get served you know i'm 55 years old your picture's <laughs> still up behind the bar like yeah. do not admit this man do not serve this man there was a bar in Indianapolis that wouldn't card, but you had to know the score. You had to order at the table. You had to say yes, ma'am, to the waitress. There were only certain drinks you could order. The guy who ran it was a World War II vet, and he would throw you the fuck out if you didn't follow the rules. Yeah. So you could be 17 or drinking in that bar, but as someone had to school you up on what you were allowed to get away with. Yeah. And in a way, that's the only, I remember going there and being like, I know that everyone in this bar knows that I'm underage, but because I'm sort of following the rules, it's okay. Mm-hmm. So I did mm-hmm. have that. The only difference is that you have to drive there. So it's like invariably, right, there's also course. the, yeah. the, who's, who's the not, honorable drink driving. Yeah, drink driving. American it's, it's, it's changing in America, but where I'm from, it was such a yeah. de rigueur thing. 
And that's that's one of those things where it's like a huge culture clash, I think. I think this country seems to have a pretty intense drinking culture. It does. What, what I think there's something really important, and it's too... It's super of ideas that sort of run counter to each other. But mm-hmm. yes, the drinking culture is a big thing. But you know, a key a key thing to remember is how many people are drinking too much, right? Yeah. yeah. And now there's a lot of them, and it's and it's in the vast majority of people who get really ill through drinking too much, you know aren't the kind of you know wake up in shop doorways the you know the 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 alcoholics inverted commas of of, of caricature they're mm. big drinkers like me have been doing it with impunity but it's so important to remember that you know of all drinkers there's a, a you, you ask any big drinker what percentage of all drinkers are drinking within the safe guidelines yeah. of 14 units ask any heavy drinker that question mm. they will say none one yeah. percent. I mean, the answer is seventy percent. Yeah, I rem- right. Most drinkers are most drinkers are drinking are drinking safely. Now it's so important to remember, and in, in terms of drinking less, that social norming idea having been taken away was such a a big thing for me because no longer could I sit in a pub and t- say to myself, like most drinkers, everybody drinks that much. Mm. 14 units, nobody drinks that little. It's just not true. Right, now you can say the 14 units thing is a nonsense or whatever, right? Mm. But you can't say most people drink like that because it simply isn't true. And just listening to, to you now, it strikes me that right from a young age when I was thinking even then, everyone's drinking. Mm. Again, that's not quite the case. There's a noisy minority, even majority who are doing it. There's an awful lot. Who aren't? As soon as you start drinking and want to, mm. you know, you've got this urge, you know, I've got to get hold of a drink, whether yeah. you're in Indiana or Starbridge, yeah. right? You, you know, as soon as you enter that minority, you will find other people who are in that little club. Yeah. And mm. you will find, and, and, and that it becomes your social norm. And that's one of your reasons, one of your reasons to keep doing it. When I went to university, clean slate, came from Birmingham to London. So you got a whole new friend, a whole new bunch of friends you choose. Let's say I made a couple of dozen. You know, mm. friends and acquaintances at university, a handful of really close friends, right? Mm. And a couple and dozen by a strange, a st- an astonishing coincidence. All of them are big drinkers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, and I'm telling myself subconsciously, well, that's because everybody drinks. No, it's not. It's because I chose them. Yeah. You know, that's why you met them. Yeah, in the well, shop that's doorway. That's probably yeah. why I met them. But, you know, <laughs> it, either way, it reinforces this idea. Mm. This, you know, this fallacy that yeah, you, you know, that everybody is uh, is drinking yeah. as much as you. Mm. Well, I think at university, that's certainly a sample where you're going to encounter more people who are drinking a yeah. lot. I mean, I certainly drank more at university, but I yeah. think it does go back a bit to what you were saying earlier about it being a bit generational. Because I definitely noticed, like, certainly with like my parents' generation, I think drink more than my generation do on the whole in just a kind of in a Tuesday night kind of way and yeah. um, I think I noticed it a lot because my parents didn't drink much and they would often like go over to like friends places for dinner and they'd yeah. be like Christ um, and then also I think that like the drink driving thing similarly like I remember like all of my friends dad would drive like completely yeah. pissed like all the time because yeah. it was just yeah. like, accessible, then, like you know that kind of like I drive better when I'm drunk actually <laughs> kind of right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, I don't know any of my like contemporaries who do that no. yeah. there is that kind of generational shift in attitudes I think 
There was, a, there was actually a passage that I wanted to talk about because you were talking about making friends at university and, and a similar culture shock when you encounter people from County Durham who yeah. going out with them. And I'm going to read this passage because I found this very funny. Mm. Uh, you said, your friend Jed, on the other hand, had grown up in a drinking culture at a different level altogether than the one I'd known. Going out on a night with him and his mates in concert was to witness a level of drinking that made me feel like a novice. They started early and finished late. At no stage was it an option to refuse a pint. One weekend, Martin, the shed man, now an eminent orthodontist, as it happens, came to concert with <laughs> that's Jed a, That's and me. a powerful little yeah. British <laughs> sentence yeah. there, yeah. <laughs> Martin liked to drink as much as anyone, but not in these quantities. He just about managed to keep up, bless him, until about 1 a.m., by which time we must have been well into double figures. At this point, Martin cracked. In the tone of quiet desperation I'll never forget, he quietly asked me, as it was my round, if I could get him a bottle of Beck's instead of a pint. Not a soft drink, please note, just a beer in a smaller vessel. I smuck it, snuck it to him when I returned from the bar, but Jed's brother Patty was on to us in a flash. What's your last drinking, he demanded. <laughs> Martin's <laughs> reputation was in tatters. I expect mine was tainted too, merely by association with him. We left town the following morning under cover of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, incredibly, that is all true. I mean, Martin is actually a professor of orthodontics. He, he literally wrote the textbook. <laughs> Anyone study it? He's really straightened out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he has. He has, yeah. So I, in, in a way, it's like, I'm curious at that reaction because you said it was a long process to realize that like you would find yourself if you didn't change your drinking habits in a situation where for health reasons, you wouldn't be able to drink at all. And so it was less of like, I must become abstinent now so much as I must moderate this so that I can enjoy it even when I get older. Yeah. Mm. And I was wondering before that moment, because you described the moment when you were uh, getting a liver exam and, and mm -hmm. they, they said that you had early signs of cirrhosis. Before that, when you encountered situations like this, for example, did you have ever have a moment to be like, wow, we do sure do drink a lot in this country. It's <laughs> a little bit excessive. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was aware. I was, a I was aware I drank a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was aware I was drinking more and more with every decade that passed. Yeah. But, you know, I was just too good at it in the sense there was no obvious reason to yeah. stop. I mean, there's a guy in, in the book who I met, who, who was an ex-politician as it happened, but he said, you know, he didn't drink much because he said he was blessed with hangovers. That's kind of the right way to look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, hangovers are, you know, Mother, Mother Nature's alarm bells, you know, waking up in a skip being another one. It's, yeah. You know, but mm. why you shouldn't do it. I had no alarm bells, really. I do remember once, I, remember, I mean, I, I just remember, you know, I remember once going to a, the doctor about something else. And I was idly wondering what if he said I could never drink again. And I was just thinking, that would be horrific. That would be mm. really horrific. I just don't know I could live. And then, Either at the time or a bit after, I thought, well, that is suboptimal. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. If I'm feeling like that, then I, you know, I, how can I say I haven't got some level of dependence? But I just carried on. And there's always this othering with, with big drinking. A, you're saying everybody drinks a lot. You're kidding yourself mm -hmm. with that. B, mm. you're saying the 14 units thing is nonsense because nobody drinks it. They don't know what they're talking about. That lets you, uh, that, that gives you a, mm. a green light to carry on but oh you're always on the lookout for people worse than you drinking drinking more yeah. than you mm. who, who you can compare your drinking favorably to you know rightly or wrongly you're but taking just, business was, trips to russia yeah. just to, just to prove <laughs> but, you know, i was i was just writing something about you know Chris, the challenges of christmas drinking mm. Mm -hmm. and i was just i was just remembering a couple of times that i mean like most 
really big drinkers. It sort of, it's sort of rank amateurs who get involved mm. at Christmas, you know, and I feel they sort of get in my way. I don't like New Year's Eve, you know. I just like the pub to myself, you know. But I remember going to Christmas parties. I go to Christmas parties and often I didn't drink that much, you know, or if I did, it wouldn't really affect me because my tolerance had built up such a level, you know. Mm. And I'd be the one, you know, carrying, you know, some some kid who, or whoever who doesn't normally drink but then got smashed and felt ill and had to be helped home. I'd be the one helping them home. Mm. And I'd be thinking, oh, they got a bit of a drink problem. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. I was the one with the drink problem. I just didn't look it because, I, you know, that's why you had the tolerance, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, I had the tolerance exactly. Well, it's interesting. I think that that anecdote you were telling earlier about about the party up north. It really, I think, like so much of this drinking culture stuff in Britain, it wasn't a party. It was just a night in the pub. Oh, just a regular, sorry, standard. yeah, just it to felt be clear. like a party. But no, it, wasn't. it was just yeah. nor it was standard Saturday. Yeah, Friday, like so Saturday. much of it is kind of it's this mechanism of like socially paying your dues by doing the the significant sufficient amount of drinking. Because I'm often driving, so if I'm not drinking, people do look at you weird in the pub. And I just it just reminded me of this funny story. Once we had like a an old boys meet up at uni and there was, it was going to be like a big drinking night like a lot of pints similar to the story you were describing and one of the guys who was always regarded just slightly suspiciously by there's like a lot of guys different ages like maybe like 10 years apart and uh, he turned up and claimed to be on antibiotics so he couldn't drink and then this guy and uses a really brutal northern irish guy from belfast was like well i didn't fucking believe that for a second <laughs> and he's yeah, like but yeah. i couldn't make him drink so i made him drink fucking milk instead <laughs> and he just yeah. started giving him pint after pint of milk for the and i've never seen someone so ill in my life and that oh was the God. thing like well you're not going to drink but you're still going to suffer <laughs> and that's the point i mean that is one kind of conclusion i reached that i really wanted to i really wanted to be clear with myself that you know bearing in mind you know, alcohol is only the is the only drug you have to apologise for not taking. Yeah, yeah. That you know, I was never again going to guilt or pressure somebody into drinking, and neither was I going to be pressured or guilted into drinking myself. Mm. And and that and uh, by and large, I've got to be mindful of doing it. I tell you, I've got to really keep an eye on myself because I do, you know, I I, I do do it, particularly to others. Less it's less done to myself. So, you know, I, you know, but I really think that's important. Yeah, I think it also really depends on what your acceptable level of use is. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I've read your book and like, yeah, I guess I'm a moderator too, but it's just because of hangovers I got. Yeah, well, I was, I was in the army it. before. We have a really bad culture with drinking in the military as far as like both incredibly harsh consequences if you get in trouble for it, yeah. but also an expectation that you will binge drink, that you will not yeah. we, you will not be the weak link as far as going out. And that creates a pretty unhealthy relationship with alcohol, I think. And then if you get older, I just could, couldn't keep up with it. And so in a way, like it's easier for me to moderate because the pain response is so profound that like if I slip up, I pay for it. And that's just how it's been for the last almost yeah. 10 years now. So, you know, ultimately... Um, you know, it's easier than, for example, what you describe in the book, where like, if you, if you, you don't, it sounds like if you don't pay attention to it, if you don't, mo you know, pay uh, understand how you can slip up, you will slip up because it's yeah, easy. you've got to be, yeah, you, you need to be kind of vigilant. I mean, it's a bit like, a bit like with food, you know, if you're on a, you know, you if over, if you've got a, you know, a propensity to overeat, you know, which mm -hmm. I have, yeah, you've got to be constantly vigilant, you know. It, it happened to me the other day, something stressful happened. And before I knew it, I'd crammed half a bloody box of 
cheese biscuits down or something, whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. I could sort of get get mm. get hold yeah. of. Um, what, I mean, I was all I was going to say is like one of the things that I sort of got reading your book. I should also clarify that I I don't drink. I've, I've only ever drunk alcohol twice. All right, yeah. both when I was a teenager, one to impress a girl and it didn't work out, uh, and one yeah. just because I was out out with my friends in Dartford and the only thing you can do when you're like 16 yeah. in Dartford and you don't get into the Bull and Vic pub, which, you yeah. know, I don't know if you've ever been there. It's not, it's a bit of a grim place. Um, so, you know, we did what all teenagers did in that time and got white lightning and drank, oh, yeah. and drank, drank it in the park. Um, a light and, beverage. Yeah. I mean, that's not a, you know, that's not a, an entry level drink that that's I for, should uh, have known mm. that before I did it. Um, but um, like one of the things I got reading your book was just that, you know, as you were sort of like going through, like trying to understand and interrogate your history of drinking. Yeah. Also underlining that is this kind of attempt to, you know, seemingly successful attempt to like actually enjoy alcohol, like also yeah. kind of really recalibrate like your enjoyment of alcohol. And it seems that those things are kind of related. The idea that like, well, once you interrogate, like the reason why you're doing this and you know uh you can then actually kind of like build a better relationship with it which is counterintuitive to a lot of the sort of like self-help stuff that's around at the moment which is very much kind of centered around abstinence um even like broadly in self-help culture like Mm. at the moment a lot of it is just like and you know and it's not just like giving up alcohol it's also like giving up any kind of recreational drug it's like giving up masturbation it's like giving up all these sort of things that are considered to be vices which limit you in a lot of cases limit like your kind of under like masculinity and stuff and i wondered whether Mm. um yeah i guess i was like i I wondered whether you had any thoughts on just like broader kind of understandings of addiction and because so much of these kind of like uh, so much of these guides uh around like you know giving up things they also all sort of rooted in the idea that like all addiction is bad and like to kind of purify yourself well i think well i think it's wrong to see it as a as a kind of a binary thing that's my problem Mm. with the term you know alcoholism it seems to be an ism or a a disease and it's something you either have or haven't got when it's not it's like it's on a you're on you know a continuum of how much mm, you drink. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you, if you smoke 80 a day, you're not a smokeaholic. If you take heroin, you're not a heroinolic. You're, you're, you're addicted to heroin or you're mm. addicted to cigarettes. So I just think with, you know, with alcohol, as sort of Lee Mack puts it in the book, I, I think the, the best way of looking at it is that it, it's an addicted substance. And if you're yeah. drinking 20, 30 units a week, as I am now, you, you're a little bit addicted. If you're drinking mm. 50 odd, you're more addicted. If you're drinking 100 or more, you're very addicted, and yeah. and it will mm. it'll probably and it will probably harm you. So, you know, it's you know, it's 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 a way of, of thinking about it like that. I do often I find it fascinating. You're the third person actually, only the third person I'd say who's interviewed me who doesn't drink. Oh really? Mm. Okay. And I just think, you know, I'm talking about all these contortions I get through to you know, to drink less, to keep drinking, but do drink mm. less and all the stuff of thinking about it. I mean, to somebody who's never really drunk, you know, it must look absolutely bizarre. You know, why, why are you putting yourself <laughs> I this? certainly have had a lot of times. Because, like, again, because all of my friends, I went to, like, a very sort of, like, white school in yeah. Kent. So all my social life involved drinking, but also, like, oddly, um, I mean, I had to make a calculation, and I think a lot of it was also, like, the fact that where I grew up, there was no public transport. So I would need my parents mm. to come pick me up from like wherever, wherever I went to. So I also knew that like, 
I couldn't drink alcohol because clearly they would smell it on me. And because they were like very religious, like, you know, religious punishments are far worse than normal punishments. But it's interesting in your, in your, you know, in your peer group at college yeah. or whatever, mm. you wouldn't have the situation we just heard about where, you know, you wouldn't have to come up with the excuse about antibiotics. You know, because yeah, of yeah, your yeah. heritage, yeah. you know, people would probably, you know, back off from 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 giving you a real aggro you would, about you would think that but mm. in in dartford it certainly wasn't the case and there was definitely like a, a joint lot of, then yeah well there was there, <laughs> there was kind of like in a, in a lot of ways there was almost pressure for me to drink which was also how the white lightning incident happened because yeah. mm. i was then told that oh like these drinks they don't leave a stench so like you know you'll be fine and <laughs> I think because so much of social life was kind of really rooted, especially in most yeah. small towns, is really rooted in that type of drinking. And one of the, I mean, one of the things I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit was just like, because there was nothing to do in most towns other than to sort of like get drunk, you know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really like many places to like hang out generally, like lots of sort yeah. of, you know. I think that's a cop out. There are other ways, there are other things to do. If you, mm -hmm. if, if there was mm -hmm. just no drink, you would find, Something else to do. We like, it might involve yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be, or it might be just. I don't know. I mean, this idea that you have to have alcohol is essential to have a good time. I mean, I think the World Cup has been fascinating. Right? I, I was I was looking at the Saudi Arabian fans when they mm. beat Argentina in the early stages, going absolutely ballistic. Now, are we looking at them thinking? Oh, poor people. If only they could drink, they'd be having a better time than this. They couldn't have had a better time than that. It was a national holiday the following day. You know, by our logic, we're thinking, well, what's the point? What are they going to do all day? They can't go out drinking. You know, they can't. It's mad. Also, similarly, mm. there are England fans who are watching England, you know, without much or any drink inside yeah. them for the first time, you know, ever. Now, mm. Let's see. Let's imagine England get to the World Cup final, right, and win, right? Those fans will be in the stadium watching Harry Kane lift the World Cup, right? Probably the best night of their lives, of an England fan's life. You probably won't mm. ever replicate that. You probably never thought it happened. Others before you have died, and it's, you know, who would love to have mm. seen it, and it never happened. Now, are you going to walk out of that stadium at the end going, that, I, I mean, that was great, but oh, I wish we could have drunk. It would have been so much better if we had some alcohol. I mean, they just wouldn't say that. In some ways, it's like a Greek tragic punishment for the English fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they do win a World yeah, Cup yeah. in a dry country, that really, that really but, no, would but be... Except, but that's the point. It <laughs> yeah. won't matter. Yeah. Mm. You know, it really won't matter. Now, they might say afterwards, oh, we, we'd love to go out and get pissed Yeah, now. I was going to say, it would have been yeah. nice to go down the pub maybe, afterwards. Yeah, maybe. Love okay, the World Cup, but, won it. Mashallah, let's have a shisha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well after I just, I mean, so much of what I've sort of come down to is, mm. is just reframing how you think about sure. sort of alcohol and, and what I've just said being sort of part of that. Also thinking about all the drinks, all the pointless drinking you do. Yeah. I mean, the first drink is the only one that really makes a difference. Mm. That creates a change of state. Yeah. And the mm. second one, a bit and every subsequent one to me is a futile if you think about it it's a futile futile waste of time a, a doomed attempt to try and recreate the feeling that the first drink the gave, first you. One gave you yeah you mm -hmm. know and it's just if you really focus on that for long enough in the end yeah it digs in you just increasing the harms you got getting mm. drunker you're increasing the mm. downsides mm. before you I mean the first two drinks it's mainly upsides then you're increasing the downsides i also thought I was writing this in the context of Christmas as a whole, but you could say it in the context of a 
just one heavy night out or one night out. Now, you know, very often as a drinker, you'll wake up in the morning and think, I wish I hadn't drunk quite so much last night. Yeah. Right? Never, I don't know about you, never have I thought, God, I wish I'd drunk more last night. Never. <laughs> if, I had, if I've had like gone out no. really late, I've been like, oh, I'm sure this event would have been a lot better if I was slightly drunk. Like, because sometimes yeah. you do go to events and quite often they are actually ones where like there is alcohol being served and like right. a lot. Of, and I think as you mentioned in your book and as you just also mentioned now, but like after people sort of go past a certain point of having drinks, like the whole kind of like situations yeah. changes. I've been to so many parties growing up and even in uni actually, where like it starts off really well. And I used to really like going early to parties yeah. because I used to enjoy that. But then like later on, as everyone sort of becomes more drunk and you're like the only sober one. Like it yeah. sort of just becomes very weird and disorientating. But again, it was a situation where it was like, well, I have literally, I don't really feel like I have any other choices of what to do other than to be here. Not mm. least because, well, when I was a teenager, having to wait for my mom or dad to come pick me up. So, you know, all those sort of times. And it was really interesting because I was talking to one of my friends um, while I was like reading your book, who is quite a big drinker and one of those types of people who kind of believes that every sort of social situation can either be like heightened or like be better by drinking or will just kind of feel a little bit awkward in situations where there isn't really alcohol being served. Um, and I think he kind of like echoed some of the statements that you made, which was initially he remembers when he was younger, when we were younger, going to sort of parties and drinking for the first time and having like really, you know, you know, good nights that he still talks about now and kind of believing that, the alcohol sort of made that better. And so as he sort of continues mm. to drink more now, some a part of that he admitted was like, yeah, I'm trying to kind of like relive some of those moments, yeah, yeah, which is kind of like really, it, it actually, I didn't think he realized it when he was telling me, but it was like, like a Pavlovian response. This is kind of like really obsessing that, you know, you are seeking like this feeling, right? But it also can kind of completely make sense as to like why, even just generally like why people drink is kind of like either to numb feelings or to chase yeah. feelings that they remember and was, yeah. really can't be. There was a thing that you said in the book too, that effect Adrian, which was that, you know, speaking of research that psychologically, like, like physiologically, when you drink alcohol, it takes time for the alcohol to yeah. hit your brain. And yet people feel good the minute they take the first sip of alcohol, because there is this built in kind of response you've developed. To sort yeah, of like, because it's a, it's a anticipatory response. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, it was the Professor David Knott, who's, you know, endlessly qualified with, you know, a list of letters after his name, as long as you like. Yeah, David he Cameron it, fired for yeah, telling him yeah, the truth. Exactly. Yeah, that one. <laughs> but he, um, he, you know, as he put it, you've got to remember alcohol, when you first taste it, is aversive. Mm -hmm. Unless mm. it's some alco pop or something, you know, the first beer you have or the first wine is horrible. Yeah, yeah. But because of the f pleasant feelings associated with it, you then learn to love the taste of it. And equally, the first taste of beer you get, you're feeling good before it's breached your blood system. But, you know, that's that anticipatory feeling. I mean, I've just got a, I mean, it's a game changer, by the way, having draft alcohol-free lager. That's a game mm. changer. Having it at equal standing. Yeah, on the yeah, bar, yeah. yeah, that's massive, you know. And props to Lucky Saint for for, for doing it. I think there's Guinness Zero Zero. Is still so about. I didn't, yeah, because mm. I had a non-alcoholic beer once and I hated it. It just tasted like but you don't like the yeah. taste of it. I mean, for me, that's had. I would I feel no different in that kind of that buzz as I would if I had, you know, a proper Guinness or or, or something. Sure, sure. You know, it's that mm. again. It's that anticipatory thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that does seem like a change. Um, 
that I, I have seen a lot of that. I, I think you mentioned this uh, in the book, you know, programs for people to be mindful about drinking, mm. apps to help people count their units yeah. and things like that, where it's, there is, of course, still a focus on abstinence. There is that, that is an, certainly a thing you find. And for some people, my brother is one, abstinence is the only thing that works. Yeah. But then in other cases, it's just being aware of how much you're consuming. So yeah. you kind of like make the drinks you do have count. And that seems to be kind of like the ethos I mean, of the I book. I think there's a real, look, there's absolutely a key place for abstinence. I might end up, you know, being abstinent myself, if only because moderating is, you know, is, is exhausting. You've got decisions mm -hmm. to make every mm -hmm. day. You know, when I came in here, do I have a pint? Do I just have, you know, the alcohol-free pint? What am I going to drink later? All oh, right. Well, actually, you know, I'm meeting. I'm going to got to go to Birmingham tonight. I'm not getting off the train till ten past eleven. But I've arranged to meet my mate there mm. in a pub which opens late. You know, so I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to drink before that. Yeah. So you know, constant, constant decision making. It's mm. exhausting. Yeah. You know, and you you know, it just it's much easier in a way if you say I'm not drinking. Everyone knows you. I'm never drinking again. Everyone knows you made that decision. Mm. You know, and so it takes the kind of the decision-making out of it once yeah. you've made the big decision. Mm. Um, I, I did find that really interesting in the book, uh, the discussion about, you know, either you find a thing that works for you or you accept the fact that on a long term, you will either become abstinent by force or you will die yeah. from it. Yeah. And I've known people that I feel like had they, had they, had they become moderate drinkers earlier in life, they might have not yeah. had to quit completely but yeah. it got to the point where they had they could not have a, a healthy relationship yeah. with alcohol and so ending it's the only one that i worked. think it passed you know it then it plainly passes some kind of tipping point but yeah. i didn't want to get to that tipping point is one of the mm. you know is one of the you know is one of the thing i didn't want it to dominate my life i yeah. remember a friend there's a there's a, a friend of mine said oh you know the world's very beige for me without alcohol and that really was quite profound for me. That was almost a religious thing. I thought, hang on, I'm just not having this. You know, I was outside. I was looking at the green of the trees and the grass and the blue of the sky. And I thought, well, you know, it's it's not colorless. It's not beige. I knew yeah. and I, I, I felt the same. I thought, I'm just not having this. It's gone too far now. You know, mm. if I need the world, in order to color in the world, if I need alcohol to do that, I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to rein this back in. I'm too dependent. Mm. It's got its causing to me too much. Well, mm. no, I think I think that's a that's a good place to leave it in in terms of the book, um, because I feel like there's a lot of stuff in there I found was really interesting, and I certainly I'm, I actually your approach, for example, about um, having food first yeah. because it makes you not necessarily as yeah. alcohol hungry. Yeah, yeah. Going to give that a try because I, I I realized made a connection reading that, mm. so I found that really interesting. But I have to say. We have a fan group for our show, and they have a sub-channel where they share your columns oh, because right. they really love them. <laughs> I'm and not I sure would be... where people are taking the piss. I mean, they're terribly easy to parody. They're sort of pooter, <laughs> no, pooterish. Someone, and... some, someone I know tried to put your columns through an AI chatbot. Yeah, and the AI was not able to like sort of come up with anything close to like yeah. what you've done. You've defeated it? technology. The in, in a lot of ways, you may be trials. like one of the few columnists who can defeat the AI chatbot. Uh, okay, and that's I know based on one of your most recent columns that you have like a disdain towards like checkout machines, yeah. which I share. Like I distrust the machines well, I'm, I'm as well. Against automation, but pointless automation. I don't see mm. the. You know, I just don't see the the point. I find the spookiest self-checkout <laughs> machine is the Sainsbury's one because it talks to you in robot voice all mm. the way through until yeah. the very end where it goes, do you want a receipt? And it just yeah. it makes me jump every time. 
I don't know why they yeah, got an yeah. auntie in to do that last bit. But, you know, bit. I want to do some in-depth investigation about what that neck-to-point thing is all about. And those <laughs> yeah. loyalty scheme. What, I wrote a column about that recently. What, <laughs> what is going on there? You know, they reel you in with 100 points for some bag of spinach. And, oh, no, I'll go for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 100 <laughs> points. You know, I don't even check whether they haven't put it up to £15 a leaf or something. You know, they're, they're playing with you. They've got I feel their, like all the, the supermarket points response. thing. Like, my, my wife, like, I, I am very forgetful about, like, point stuff. Um, but my wife is very, like, uh, she kind of does it quite a lot. But every time she puts the little app on when we, like, do our weekly shop, we don't get any discounts. And I'm just like... Oh, the little app, that's a level. Yeah. I've not stretched to the little uh, app. No, and, and I'm just like, no, this is, like, there's, there's a scam going on here. I don't know quite what it yeah. is, but I think it's, like, connected to the nectar points somehow. Yeah. Like... They swap, to, they get together and swap in dark I, I, I feel like it might be worse, but... I was saying yeah. to the lads when I got here that I had an incident that felt like it was out of one of your columns where I was trying to park outside. <laughs> It'll and be in to, one of my columns, trust I, me. I'm, I'm sure not. it will. And I had to I have to pay by an app for the yeah, parking. Yeah, yeah. And it just says, like, you can pay by app with this number, but it doesn't say which app. And I said, I've got, like, eight parking apps oh, on my yes. phone. Oh, and I'm just going through yeah. all yeah. of them trying to work out which oh, one it yeah, is. Yeah, 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 you're right. It's the same with electric charging vehicles. Oh, right. Before I got one, I just thought, before I got, you know, you, you drove an electric vehicle, I thought, well, there's loads of these. You plug in, you pay your money. You go, no, yeah. again, there's a thousand different apps. Mm. And then they change. And then you go, then you, it's bad. Yeah. So I, I've got a question go about on. the, uh, about, about your columns. I noticed it seems like every time I read one, the headlines are incredible, but it seems as though the headlines are just pulled from the copy. It seems like no. the headline finds perhaps well, the key let me, sentence. Let me tell you. I mean, as you might know, I'm, I'm I'm married to the editor of the of the Guardian. Okay, all right. But, okay. but I, I mean, I met her through doing the column. I've got taken on by the features editor. Then Kath yeah. said, "Come in and see me." Clarification, because anyway. there is like a conspiracy theory no, no. about like, and I. So we should make it very clear that like it happened in reverse. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Right. I, I never even met her till I've been doing the column for three months, and it was sort of. It was about three months after that we sort of got it on or whatever you want to. Whatever, whatever you're, you want to. you're actually the only man in Britain with a seductive newspaper column. You know, Robert Crampton could never. This is... But, um, <laughs> if anything, Rod Little's columns have the opposite effect. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Somehow. But, the, but the, look, I, I don't want you to think there's, I, I am, there's any kind of master plan here. This mm. is what I will do. It is fucking desperation. You know, mm. I've got them howling at me on Wednesday, Tuesday. Yeah. What are you going to write about? I don't know. And they're and in your Wednesday house. Wednesday morning, what are you going to... Yeah, what are you going to... Well, no, she's not, because she has to keep sort of clear about it. But then mm. well, then come Wednesday morning, what are you going to write about? you got to tell us. I don't fucking know. I can't tell you if I don't know. Yeah. And then I just drag something out my ass and just, to, just get it down. And it sort of kind of works. As for the... I mean, I always think the headlines are shit. I always, in fact, I've got, I just, and I've had to admit I'm just wrong because they seem yeah. to draw people in to get it. Sometimes they seem to miss the point. So I just, but they seem to know what they're doing. I mean, they yeah. can, you know, they, you know, they, they, they know what drives people to, to click it. I mean, there's a, there's a genius element to the headlines because we, we did an episode a while back, kind of in a similar vein, where we talked to Jeremy Vine. Because I am obsessed with the Jeremy Vine show on Radio 2. Yeah. And, the, and I think what Jeremy is great at is kind of 
distilling like the mad opinions of the British public, but he's very good at just like just sort of kind of teasing them out in this very sort of non-judgmental way yeah. and just sort of showcasing like a particular. And I think he gets that kind of partridge comparison yeah, a lot because yeah, yeah, you know yeah. our ISIS, the most evil group yeah. of all time, yeah, right. whatever that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And then I think there's there's similarly there's an element of that that comes out in the headlines. Yeah. Like, like I, I this was... one I really loved. I had such bad car sickness as a kid that the mere smell of Dad's Volvo would set me off. <laughs> well, what's like, that? I mean, <laughs> that was a direct lift for me. I mean, that was just that was. Today I was I'm I'm juggling a lot of things I got to get done before the end of the week and we went through to prepare the list of things and when I read I recently saw something in a petrol station toilet southbound on the M1 that I can never unsee I I completely lost my mind laughing and I was like this is genius we've this all been brilliant. there well I remember I, I, I just, don't see what's yeah, genius about it you, if you experience it then <laughs> you you just <laughs> It was ghastly. Well, it's, you know. just, it's just one of those things where I think the extent to which so many columns, and I'm not singling out The Guardian because I think it's oh. universal both in, in British journalism and in American mm. all English language journalism, so often either like like platitude statements that the author knows will never be achieved or like just the most sort of niche complaints, but like trying to externalize it in a way that, mm. you know, makes it a universal problem. And it's like, instead, this is just, there's, there's something about this that just feels very, like, it's like a, like not a parody, but kind of like a knowing, uh, knowing way playing with the rules of this sort of thing. Yeah. And so that's, it's just because it's such a non-standard I don't know if you recall this years ago, there was a, like a thing where you could generate fake Guardian columnist headlines. Oh, yeah. And it kind of reminds me, but like in a very, like it, it, instead of it being absurd, it's just very, very, I don't know. It's so unique that every yeah. time we see one, we're just like, we, we've got it. We've like, got to share like this. There's an authenticity about it, which I think because every newspaper column is basically this. Right. It's it's kind of like I saw something in a toilet, except what most columnists do is like, yeah. and now I'm going to make a point about the youth of today or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that you don't do that and like keep it in that kind of more mundane spell, like here's a thought I had this week, I think yeah, is yeah. what makes it so distinctive. I think it's also, yeah, I mean, like irritating one the, by extension. One of the things I really, because I, I feel like I, I'm a very big fan and I'm definitely the one who like screenshots a lot of your columns and oh. I'm like, <laughs> Go off, King, or like you know, he's okay. he's so he's so right about this, and you are you're so right about so much. Um, like I think a lot of it, you know, in a weird way, it actually reminds me of uh, the good times I had in the pub as a non-drinker, having conversations with my friends about like the most mundane things yeah. in our lives because we grew up in a small town where like the only kind of the things that really mattered were the mundane yeah. things, right? Um, and you kind of forget like how important a lot of that is. Uh, and how also like foundational that is to like the best moments of your life or like the most memorable yeah. things of your life, right? Or even just, you know, one of the, I remember like, you know, one of our, cause I think your column on like the glasses, uh, I'm going to read it out cause this is really great. Uh, we can go to the moon, so why can't we yeah. stop my glasses you know sliding down Do my we, nose? Can I just, on that one, right? I've got yeah. some things for my glasses. Oh my God, I'm very invested right. in this. These things, right? All right. Wow, oh my God. That, yeah, oh, sort of I hooks see. You put on the back. I gotcha, yeah, yeah. Right. okay. Now they stay up. Yeah. This has had the effect of absolutely ruining the bridge of my nose. It's on fire. It gets covered in pimples, bruises. Never known contact with glasses it's like just, this. It's, I know yeah. why they used to slip down to save me the pain of being in the same place. Literally, it's like yeah. an electric shock if you touch it. Oh my in these god! Certain places so you got what you stuff. asked for, but unfortunately, it had terrible consequences. Yeah, I'm <laughs> too close to the sun, like Icarus. No, I'm yeah. hoping. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that my my 
bridge of my nose mm. toughens up. You know, it's like Form wearing calluses. new shoes. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, it's like calluses. <laughs> but I think a lot of it, a lot of like the sort of slight, it's like the mundane slice of life stuff is kind of things that we've forgotten. Like partly, I think as you mentioned, like the way that other columnists have done this, where they sort of will kind of pepper in quite mundane observations in their columns, but try to then use that make to sort of to make this like wider point. thing about like the wokerati or like, you know, mm. the kind of, you know, the Islington left or whatever. And then... <laughs> Obviously, because we often, because so many people now spend so much time on phones and like yeah. social media and everything. Like, I think it's very easy to sort of forget the mundane. The last pub conversation I had with my friends was basically almost entirely about politics. And I like, I just remembered that when we were younger, even though we all studied politics in school and everything mm. and were interested, we never really spoke about that outside of like particular yeah. thing. And I think it's like a really good reminder that like actually the stuff that really connects us and the stuff that like is really kind of, you know, important to like function in a society, like stuff to do with mm, yeah. uh, automated like machines and like lining up at the post office and all these things you have to participate in are worth observing and examining yeah. and kind of thinking about our place in it. Um, and so there's like almost like a, a deep sense of like profound, like, I, or, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to like not kind of um, overplay it, but like, I think there is something quite profound about just, taking the time to really think about these aspects of life that kind of make, yeah. you know, that are just part of living. But I just think if, I mean, to reduce it to a sort of a logical mm. or illogical absurdity, you know, it's a mindfulness exercise, which involves looking at a, a raisin. Right. And really examining it. And I think that's really interesting. I think life's a bit like that. I mean, you, mm. I mean, anything is sort of fascinating and I do, I don't know, I, think if I could just write a column when I just literally met a random person and spent a day with them or an hour or two with them and just talked to them. But with that, you've got to be careful that you might find it interesting. It doesn't mean anybody else will. But, um, you know, I just find I just find those certain situations you know, yeah. incredibly well, I think interesting. That kind of, I think there's an element of probably what makes the column good is that there is um, a sort of like, you know, uh, Plato came up with this concept that the only person who's fit to be a king is the one person who doesn't want to be king. And it feels like <laughs> you're the one newspaper columnist who sort of didn't want to be a newspaper columnist. <laughs> and that's why it's the only good, like, but, 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 because you know there's what? a generosity of spirit but, about it do, that do, you do, don't see in well, like, no, I mean, that, that's slightly, well, there's two things there. It's a slightly yeah. different thing. It's that generosity of spirit. It's just, I mean, in columns generally, and arguably, especially Guardian, there's a lot of mm. moaning going on. You know, this yeah. is, there's, and that's fine. Look, there's absolutely a place for that, holding power to account. But I thought, I might as well try and do something different. But to your other point, the bloke who first put me on television, a mm. great guy called Paul Gibbs, who, you know, I owe him everything really, and he, he, he died at the age of 62. But um, his definition of a good presenter, which he thought I had, mm. which he, he was, he said, you know, a good presenter will always look as if they, you know, they've, they've got something better to do, but they happen <laughs> to be in a studio doing the program. So, you know, I suppose it's, it's slightly along the lines of what you were saying. I mean, mm. but, you know, I, you know, I don't deal with praise well. I never know what face to pull. It's like when sure. a, it's like mm. when a sommelier pours a little a bit of wine to taste. Uh, I never yeah, know yeah. what face to pull. Mm. You know, I mean, look, there are plenty of people out there who say, I think you're absolutely brilliant. And they will go, mm-hmm. I kind of, I think you're right. Do you know what I mean? I just I, anyway, but all, all I'm, you know, you get you get a, a disproportionate amount of praise for being on the television. I mm. think you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's a bit of a knack. Sometimes you do it well. Sometimes you do it badly. 
you know, I can't take all the credit because anyway, because there's a big team behind it and and so on. But, you know, when somebody stops me and says, oh, I love your Guardian column, that is nirvana for me because mm. it's difficult to come up with something that somebody's read, presumably to the end, and say they like. I mean, that is massive for me. That's yeah. massive because, you know, I really stress about it. It's on my mind all bloody week. And then, you know, and then to get it out and then think somebody's actually read it, you know. That- what I appreciate about it, though, is that, like, you, you get to the point, you say the thing you want to say, you, you communicate it, and there's not, like, there's, there's a certain degree of, like, it doesn't feel as... It's like they've, we make the joke that a lot of British columnists, a lot of columns that we encounter in our show that we review and make, we, we talk, often make fun of them, they could just cut them off at a certain point and they would be accurate. They would have said enough, but instead... Usually after paragraph one, when which they is want the to, sarcastic paragraph. When they want to extrapolate it, they want to find some, some you know, greater point to be made. Whereas in yours, it feels as though you get to the point and then you end the column. And in a way, it's just refreshing because like, you know, there, you, there are oftentimes it's about whether or not you've had the con- like you, you you had the idea so then you ask mm-hmm. other people you talk about having the conversation some people react funny to it but like it's centered on the issue and i mean one of the headlines we we identified yeah. for this was i almost downloaded a pebble identifying app but some <laughs> stones should be left unturned like yeah. you were so right I, that about wasn't that. my line though i think that was the headline right as like that's a good okay, one yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I've still resisted that pebble app, even though I'm looking at every pebble, think, well, what is it? If I could do that, I could, I could download that app. I think that spoke to I'm me a lot because I've taken, mm. like, when I turned 30, I just sort of realized after doing a decade of, like, journalism, there are some things I just don't want to know. And I think that yeah. really mm. spoke to me. Like, I don't yeah. want, there are some things I'd like to kind of keep But I in do want to know. I do want to know. Do you, wanna, you, want yeah. the, do you have the leaf app as well, the ones that you can identify yeah. any kind of leaf oh, you just yeah. take a picture of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just. <laughs> Last night, I just going to bed with but me and wife, we're both knackered. And then and she, it was about half 11 and she said, and a plane went over it. So that sounds quite low. Oh, why the fuck have you said that? Give me my phone. I mean, she's not asking me to look, but once <laughs> I've heard look. the plane, I've got to know what it is. Yeah. And it was going from Tangier to, Stans- uh, to Stansted, passing over my place at 9,000 feet. 11,000 feet, can't remember. Anyway. Yeah. So if you're looking to I triangulate Adrian's location, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. work backwards from there. And I think that's that's something that I observed a lot, which is that, um, you know, sort of take take the piss of some people might out of the column. I would, I would challenge anyone to read five of the headlines and not relate to any of them. Because <laughs> well, I think everyone no. has one. Like for me, it was the one about, I have one question for delivery drivers, do you need to use my toilet? <laughs> and then it being like, I feel like it's a good thing to offer them to use the toilet, but then it feels weird. I only did because- it once and he... he- <laughs> He looked like he might call the police. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Do you want to There's work? No cameras in there. <laughs> I have had people ask, but you could tell there was this profound desperation on their face. Yeah. Like they really desperately. And I was like, absolutely go ahead, please. But it's it maybe once or twice. Yeah. I mean, the one, I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter, but not as myself. I just sort mm. of look, although it's, you know, You're obviously it's gone to pot at the moment. But, mm. um, and I never sort of look. I never tweet about, I never look for myself. I never search myself up. As soon as I see my name appear, I just switch it off. Fair I just enough. don't see it. But then I went down some rabbit hole when I did see something. It was after some, one of the columns, quite recently. And someone said, I can't believe they pay for this rubbish. I could do that myself in a, you know, I, 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 could, I could do that myself in a trice or whatever they said. Words along the, to that effect. And I'd never tweeted, my God, I was, that was, I nearly, I had to call a mate and he said, do not do it. <laughs> 
I mean, he's like a PR manager for sort of football clubs and stuff. So he just mm, goes, he yeah. goes, it's a sewer. It's an absolute sewer. Do you must not tweet. Any, I mean, I just want to say, I, mean, I want to say genuinely, really, feel free. I do, have a yeah. bash, right? Have a bash. You know, mm. thousand words, right? Six hundred and fifty and three hundred and fifty. Yeah. Two pieces mm. about whatever you like. Literally, yeah. send it to me, and I'll send it in and see if they publish it. And then here's the thing: then do it. Every Wednesday for the next three years, right, until you've, you've clocked up 200,000 words and have found something. You know, look, don't tell me it's easy. <laughs> don't tell me anyone can do it because, you know, mm. you, you, look, you can think it's shit. That's fine. Well, it's a but real you, grind right, you're when you're doing every week. For I do years, love the know, idea of, like, yeah. calling your mate to be like, should I reply to this guy? No, no. Um, well, and the answer is invariably no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the answer is always no. And I think, like, a lot of the problems that people get <laughs> online. my sponsor. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and, uh, it is. No, it, it is. It is. Yeah. It is like that. Yeah. Well, I, I, there was there was one I want to read. Um, we're coming up on time, but I, I had this passage that I thought was in, in the headline of the article was, "I thought it was weird to have a favorite spoon." Then I realized <laughs> I wasn't alone, and I'm just going to read a couple of passages here. You, you you write, my editor at BBC Radio Five Live did a good job of disguising her enthusiasm when I suggested a phone in on the subject of our listeners' favorite spoons. <laughs> But she went with it. God bless her. I get significant stick for ruminating on ball-achingly mundane subjects like this. And I'll be honest, on this occasion, my confidence did start to waver. I needed backup. So Tim from the Financial Times, who you'd mentioned previously, was booked up to come on the air with me. Just like great news organizations sometimes come together, pooling resources to pull off groundbreaking investigative journalism... Here, I assembled a mighty trinity of the BBC, the FT, and the Guardian. Also, I wouldn't be left to shoulder the blame alone if the listeners fall for this madness. It didn't start well. The first text in read, Adrian, you've lost it. Love, Carol. Jonathan Agnew, our venerable cricket correspondent, came on to talk about the appointment of Ben Stokes as England captain, but began by asking me, what's all this about spoons? I think you seem to lie down in a darkened room. I asked him if he had a favorite spoon. No, he said. But look, the, the punchline was we did get some incredible did, yeah. callers. You know, a woman whose late mother had left her this, you know, who, well, a spoon, but didn't leave it in the well. But, you know, just yeah, it yeah. was the spoon. She had so much love had gone into that spoon. Which, with that spoon, she'd served me food all yeah. her life. Yeah. You know, and then mm. it, it becomes, yeah. you know, it becomes a thing. You know, it's. You know, it had, you know, it's got some emotional weight. I get it. Yeah. I studied abroad with a host family when I was in high school, and the woman unfortunately died of COVID not too long ago. And by mistake, I accidentally packed a spoon from their house. I still have it. Yeah. You know, 20 years later, I still have this yeah, spoon. Yeah, yeah. I was, like, yeah. you know, yeah. was going to say this because, like, actually, that type of, like, I think that also sort of gets to the heart of why I really like your columns, and I guess why, like, lots of our fans like it too, which is, like, it's not just the fact that you are asking questions that, you just wouldn't kind of, you know, you, you might think about it, but you would never sort of like say it. Uh, mm. But in asking that question, it also like displays this kind of profound sense of curiosity that we talk about on the show, like what a lot of columnists, especially political columnists lack, is that curiosity to sort of know how people kind of like live their everyday lives. Um, and like, and sometimes asking something like, yeah, what is your favorite spoon can like, you know, it, it kind of elucidate like a really, a much like, deeper story and much deeper truth and i think that's like really admirable and something that is really missing from british journalism and maybe like other journalism but like you know the british journalism but i'm familiar Telegraph with colonists don't even know what a spoon generally. is yeah fed through a cube by their <laughs> too busy you know, too, you know. too busy on their smartphones mm. the, the last one that we had saved out of here was uh large or extra large my perilous first condom purchase <laughs> 
I'm sorry. These yeah, truly, great. there are people who've been there and they're liars, yeah. you know? Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is the paragraph we'll close on. As you write, it was only as I walked out that it dawned on me the poor woman was referring to the size of the box, not any part of my anatomy. I'd only gone and depleted my student grant buying a bumper box of 48 condoms. I wandered back to my room, dazed, confused, and even more apprehensive about everything that I had been before I boarded the bus an hour earlier. Yeah. Oh, have you, have you finished the box? Or yeah. still- no, they all perished. I threw them, I threw them away about four years later. Adrian, this has been an absolute blast. Listen, can I just say, yeah. if it, look, any time you think there's something that I made a good column, send it. I'll credit you. I just, I am always mm. I will. I will send you emails all the time if I'm allowed to. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just send, you know, just send. You're welcome just, to you parking apps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> parking apps, those bike riding apps where they're all different for different kind of electric bikes. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. You know, yeah. it's all out there. Socks aren't warm as they used to be. I no. think that's a really important one. <laughs> yeah. Probably true. It's probably true. They use I different mis- I'm genuinely being serious. Like supply chains, socks are not as warm as they used to be. Or perhaps your toes are just getting colder. You've got to allow for that possibility. Oh, possibly, yeah. yeah. I will think about that. Well, Adrian, first we'll have to make one quick announcement just to say that uh, The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less, is out from Profile Books. Uh, we will link to it in the show notes. Thank you very, very much for making time for this. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, it's pleasure. been a, a real pleasure. Anytime.